0: Well, it's great to be here with you all this morning, that's for sure. And I'm sure you've all heard of what's called the ripple effect. Uh, It's a term that's used in economics, it's used in sociology, it's even used in computer science. uh, And it's illustrated by what happens when a small object, uh, maybe a pebble or a stone, is dropped into a pool of water. We've all seen it before, right? An object is dropped into a pool of water and the circles emerge and emerge and emerge, disturbing the area around them even exponentially. And you know, we're gonna see that's exactly what happened in our text today. Uh, David falls and his sin has consequences that that affect his family even exponentially, and although David repented and repented quickly, and he was positionally and legally washed clean of his sins by a holy God, there were still consequences that followed from what he did, and the effect of his failure went on to affect his life and his family life for years and even decades to come, so we're just going to dive in, and begin with 2 Samuel 13, one through 22. And we're gonna pick up some critical lessons from this text so that we don't end up generating a ripple effect of disaster in our lives and the lives of those around us. So open your text to 2 Samuel 13, if you're not already there, and we're just gonna carefully read through the first 22 verses to start. So let's begin with verse one. It says, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cake she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, "'Get up, go.' But she said to him, "'No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me.' But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, "'Put this woman out of my presence.' and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Wow, what a tragic account. This is absolutely horrible. We need to backtrack for a minute and think about how we even got to this place. Uh, Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 10, we saw David begin to bow out of his responsibilities. Uh, he, as the king of Israel, was to be uh, participating in the battles. And instead of participating in the battles and doing the work of a king that was expected of a king in that time, he began to send others to do the work on his behalf. And as we transitioned into 2 Samuel 11, we found David being at home when he should have been at war and seeing the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah and taking her by force and then executing Uriah to cover up his crime. Scholars have said that we should note, we should always be careful when we get what we want. We should be careful when we get what we want because if we remember the David of 1 Samuel, if you happened to be here last year, uh, it was kind of a different David I mean, he was on the run and he did some strange things at times, but he was so passionate for God and the things of the Lord as he waited and waited and waited to be installed as the king of Israel as God had promised him. And now that he settled into his rule and his reign, it's almost as if he began to drift from the same passion that he originally had. And we see this warning to God's people in Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Moses speaking to the people, uh, speaking for God to his people, talking about when they're going to enter into the promised land, when they're going to get what they're promised. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 11, take care lest you forget Yahweh, your God, So it's a warning for us here. Uh, You know, sometimes we wonder why God's not answering those prayers, those years and years and years of prayers that we've lifted up to him. But maybe, just maybe, God knows exactly what he's doing in keeping you in a place of absolute dependence upon him. As you lean on him and wait for him, to grace you with the things that you so long for. As we see in David, when he got what he wanted, he tended to not fare as well as he did when he was waiting upon the Lord. And then we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and scholars say that potentially about nine months had passed from 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel 12 because God sent Nathan the prophet to David, right before his son was born, through the union of him and Bathsheba. And God sent Nathan to rebuke David of his crime, uh, to forgive him when he quickly repented, and to let him know that his sin was going to have an impact. It was going to have consequences. There would be a ripple effect that took place, impacting his entire household. And we saw that in 2 Samuel 12.10. As Nathan pronounced from God to David, now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So we see immediately now in 2 Samuel chapter 13, that prophecy beginning to be fulfilled in this carefully crafted account of what happened afterwards in David's home, beginning when David's firstborn son, Amnon, raped his sister, Tamar. What an awful and horrific nightmare for David's daughter, Tamar. We saw that the text said that she was a beautiful woman. We know her father was David and her mother was Maakah, who was a princess herself. Her father was from the kingdom of Gesher and he was the king of Gesher. And Tamar was obedient to her father. Verses seven through 10 show that she quickly obeyed what David asked her to do. And she went to take care of her sick and weakened brother, Amnon. And when Amnon attempted to woo her into forbidden and illicit sex, she resisted wholeheartedly. She reasoned with him. She leaned on God's righteous standards of behavior. She called him out on this sin. She told him he was acting wickedly and foolishly and even tried to provide a solution for him to keep from doing such a horrific thing. If you think about it, what an example of courage she is for us in the face of something so horrific. The way the author, who is God ultimately, constructs this account, we see that what was done to her was wrong. It was wrong. And we see her courage. We want to cheer for her. You want to hug her and say, you know what, hold on. God's got this and you will be vindicated. We see her obedience in the face of such horror and such tragedy. The first point for us this morning is be known for your obedience to God. Be known for your obedience to God. We see that even after her brother Amnon raped her, she tried to work not only for her own good, but for his good and the good of the kingdom as well. The good of the palace, the good of the reputation of David, of Jerusalem, of God's people. And what Amnon did was horrific, but what he did was even more horrific in that culture because in raping Tamar, she was doomed for life. She was no longer fit to be married off as a virgin princess. And she was robbed of her opportunity to ever bear her own children. And that was so important in that culture. And she would never be able to hold her own child in her arms because of what her wicked brother did to her. And that's why Deuteronomy 22 verses 28 through 29 says, If a man meets a virgin who's not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to her father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. This was to protect women who fell into situations like Tamar so that they wouldn't be uh, doomed to not ever have a husband or children. Amnon was, as Tamar said, a very wicked fool. And he should have learned from the consequences of his father, who was judged, who had received consequences from God because of the same sin that he had just committed. God will not be mocked. And although we don't hear of Tamar again in the Scripture, she stands today as a model for us of obedience, of a soul who was determined to do things God's way. And I'm sure as she lived under the protection of Absalom's roof, she never realized that we would be sitting here about 2,500 years later, studying her life, learning from her account seeing her courage in the face of horror. Even though we will never be included in the pages of scripture, like Tamar, we're going to be remembered for something. We'll be remembered for our lives. We're going to be remembered by our children, our spouses, our extended family members, our friends, our church, our community. And the question for us is, what will we be remembered for? Will we be remembered for obedience to God? Or will we be remembered for sin and compromise? Because we would never wanna be remembered the way that Amnon was. Uh, Remember what 2 Samuel 13, two said, that Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. He was tormented or obsessed. Now remember, Amnon was the firstborn of King David. And that meant that he was the heir apparent. He should have been the one who would take the throne. But he certainly wasn't acting like the future prince of Israel. He was acting wickedly and foolishly. And although Tamar was stunning in beauty, that gave him no excuse for what he did. There's never an excuse for a man to violate a woman like this. His longing for his sister was his own fault. And we see that truth in our memory verse this week. Remember James 1, 14 and 15? James 1, 14 and 15 teaches us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Uh, This desire is rooted in the self. It's his own desire. And like Amnon, we entice ourselves with the things that we desire. And it all takes place in our minds. Amnon made himself sick. He was tormented. He was obsessed with this self-inflicted desire because he wouldn't discipline his mind to do what he should have done. And his so-called love was definitely a deformed love because true love seeks the interests of others rather than itself. And just as a warning here, if any man ever tells you that he loves you so much that he cannot refrain with sex, from sex with you outside of the bounds of marriage, that is not true love. That is a deformed love and you need to run from that. But for us, What are we tormented by in our minds? What are we obsessed with? What do we allow ourselves to be enticed by in our minds? What do we want so badly that we feel we can't live without it? And what does the scripture say about those desires? The second point here is submit your desires to the scripture. Submit your desires to the scripture. When you find your desires conflicting with God's desires, and you will, you have got to let God's desires prevail over yours. We see this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Galatians five seventeen says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, They're at war with each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's like last night, as I was uh, coming here back to church, I was merging on the freeway. And as I was merging on the freeway in my little Prius, picking up speed, there was this giant truck And you know those trucks that seem so long, they seem like a circus train. You know, they just never end. And I'm trying to merge on thinking, dude, let me get in front of you. You know, what am I supposed to do here? Drive off into the weeds? And he just wouldn't budge. He just kept on going. And finally, I had to just drop back and get behind him. And the same principle is true here because you know what? He had the right of way. Those Cars that are already on the freeway, they've got the right-of-way and the ones who are merging in don't. And we've got God's will and God's will is like that giant truck. And we have got to yield our will to God's will. We have got to get behind him. If we don't, there's going to be a giant collision that occurs and the outcome won't be good. We don't want to live with the consequences of that wreck as we do not yield ourselves or submit our desires to the scripture. That's what Amnon did. He went with his own desire. He was tempted and lured and enticed by the passions that he had developed in his mind and he cashed everything in for his moment of pleasure. And then strangely, The text tells us that the repulsion that he felt for his beautiful sister was even greater than the attraction that he had for her. He bolted the door, he locked her out and he never saw her again. That's weird, isn't it? It's an illustration, a picture of the absolute absurdity of idolatry. Idolatry is when we put anybody or anything above God, above what God's will is for us. And Amnon, in his mind, made an idol out of Tamar and sex with Tamar, where getting her was more important than getting God's will. He wanted sex with her more than he wanted obedience to God. And as the scripture teaches us again and again and again, idolatry will never satisfy. In the second chapter of Jeremiah, uh, God talks about the idolatry of his people and the absurdity of this idolatry. Uh, in Jeremiah 2, verses 12 through 13, God describing the idolatry of his people says this, be appalled, oh heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So God's calling heaven to be appalled, to be shocked, to be jaws dropped thinking about this. Thinking about, he says, for my people have committed two evils, Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God saying to the heavens, this is appalling, Uh, My people have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and instead are drinking from cisterns that they've hewed out for themselves. And remember, this is in the context of idolatry. It's like if we had access to fresh running water, maybe up at Lake Arrowhead, just this beautiful crystal clear stream that's running quickly with perfect cold water that we could dip our cup in and drink from versus these cisterns. Now back then when they couldn't get or didn't have access to running water, they would uh, dig holes in the ground and then they would put plaster along the inside of these holes to catch rainwater And over time, the plaster would crack and break and leak, and that rainwater would collect. And as the days and weeks and months went on, you know what happens to that collected water, right? I mean, I've had buckets in my backyard before, and it rains, and those buckets collect rainwater. And then you go out there after a week or a couple of weeks or even a month, and you know what that water looks like and smells like. Can you imagine taking a cup and drinking from that? Just dipping in there and gulping down that water? It would be abhorrent, right? And that's what God is saying. It's abhorrent when we go after idols who were things that were never ever created to satisfy us. Rejecting him, the fountain of living water gulping down these things, trying to be satisfied by these things that cannot and will not satisfy us. What things are we trying to gulp from right now, hoping to get that satisfaction? Maybe it is a sexual relationship or sex outside of marriage or even internet pornography that we're gulping from. Maybe it's a Longing and a lust and a thirst for money, wanting so desperately more money and a hoard of money and a stash of money. Maybe it's longing for popularity, wanting so desperately to be liked by other people. Or for us, one that's a a battle in our culture is beauty, Uh, not wanting to age or seem old or appear old, panting after beauty. And even more so in our culture, it can be family, putting family above God, which a family is a gift from God and a great thing, but it was never to replace God or be above God. And if we do that, we will find that in the end we are disappointed We're not satisfied because these things were never designed to satisfy us. They will all disappoint us and fail us and leave us empty looking for something more. And on the other hand, I know God has graced me with a lot of wonderful experiences in life. And I'm sure he has for you too. But I can say, you know, nothing satisfies like a great time of worship with the Lord. Or, you know, a really good quiet time, sitting there in his word and talking to him. Or being able to talk to another human soul about Jesus and God's design for life. Or participating in the conversion of a soul, being able to talk to her and pray for her and see her transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And nothing, nothing satisfies like doing the will of God, Uh, loving God, loving other people. Those are the things that satisfy our soul like no other. We've got to choose to submit our desires to the will of God, even our desires for revenge. Let's pick up the rest of the text in 2 Samuel 13 and see how this plays out. 2 Samuel 13, we're going to read 23 to 39. It says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant." But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Now, when they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimia, David's brother, said, Let not, my lord, suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not, my lord, the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead." But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come. As your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Gesher, And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead." Now, we saw previously that Absalom was the hero for his sister Tamar. And we, they both had the same mother and the same father. And when Tamar left Amnon's house, tearing the robe of her virginity with ashes on her head, weeping and mourning and crying about what had just occurred to her, her brother Absalom stepped in. He told her to hold her peace and not seek revenge, because he was going to take care of things. And the text says that Absalom waited two full years before the perfect time arose to get even with his brother Amnon. And he took a risk and invited his father David to the sheep shearing party that he was holding. Back then these sheep shearing parties were times of great festivity and celebration. And when David declined, he offered the invitation to Amnon. Well, how would David decline two invitations, one for himself and one for Amnon? And although he was suspicious, he went ahead and granted Absalom his request. And Absalom ordered his servants to execute Amnon And even though they might have hesitated and said, wow, Absalom let them know that he would take full responsibility for this. And when the other sons of David saw that Amnon, their brother, was dead, they got on their mules, the text said, and they scattered, they fled. Now, Absalom hated Amnon's sin and rightfully so. But just like us, He needed to trust that God would avenge and not take matters into his own hands. And that's the third point for us. Know that God will avenge every wrong. God will avenge every wrong. Absalom, as we said, hated Amnon's sin. When we read through this text, we hate Amnon's sin. But you know what? God hates it even more, even more than we do and even more than Absalom did. And we can never forget that God hates sin even more than we do. No sin will go unpunished, not even one. And that's why Romans 12, 17 through 21 encourages us Romans 12:17 through 21 says, "'Repay no one evil for evil, "'but give thought to do what is honorable "'in the sight of all. "'If possible, so far as it depends on you, "'live peaceably with all. "'Beloved, never avenge yourselves, "'but leave it to the wrath of God, "'for it is written, "'Vengeance is mine, I will repay,' says the Lord.'" To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God asks us as his children to trust him with his hatred of sin and his ability to execute vengeance in his timing and in his way. Instead of longing for revenge, we as God's people are called to love and to even pray for our enemies, waiting for God to make all things right, and he will. I guarantee you God's vengeance, God's avenging sin will be far greater than anything that we could ever do. You know, when the watching world looks at us and they see that we've been wronged, but we're trusting God to get revenge, we're trusting in the vengeance of God, it bears witness to the fact that we genuinely believe that a day is coming when every soul will give an account to God. When they see us refraining from getting our own avenge, it displays to them that we truly do believe that one day every single person will be judged by the standard of God's word and that not one sin will go unnoticed. And when we seek our own revenge, when those around us see us seeking our own revenge, it reveals that we don't really believe that God is gonna judge sin. It reveals that we don't really believe that God one day will deal with it, And if we don't really believe that every human soul will stand before God's throne, our gospel becomes meaningless. It's important that we listen to God concerning these things. And we can also be strengthened to overcome evil with good because Jesus overcame our sin on the cross. And that's the motivation for all that we do. But Absalom went ahead and executed his brother Amnon, and he knew that his father would be furious. So he fled after he did it, and he went to the protection of another king. Uh, that was the king of Geshur, King Talmai, who was his grandfather. And at this point, we have Absalom, uh, Amnon dead, Absalom has fled. Tamar probably went with Absalom because she was under the covering and the protection of his home. But there's one character that's still around. Did you notice that? Jonadab, right? I mean, what's up with this guy? Who is he? First, he's hanging out with Amnon, uh, telling him how he can get time alone with his sister. Then we see him at the palace. Uh, speaking to David, consoling him that only Amnon is dead and not all of his sons. Uh, We know from the text that Jonadab was David's nephew. Uh, He was the son of David's brother, and it seems that he was just in the right place at the right time. Remember back in verse 3, the text said that Jonadab was a very crafty man, and that was definitely not a compliment. It seems like Jonadab was the palace meddler. I mean, he kept getting in everybody's business, passing along advice and information. And the fourth point for us, the fourth lesson for us here is, refuse the temptation to meddle. Refuse the temptation to meddle. We see the same truth in the New Testament. First Peter 4:15 cautions us, warns us, uh, as Peter's exhorting people to rejoice in their sufferings, because they will be rewarded for their obedience, he says, "But don't let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. If you suffer, he says, you are blessed, but not if you're suffering because you're a meddler I'm not." Greek word there that's translated as meddler is an interesting word. Uh allo triepiscopos. And allo is allos it means other and episkopos means overseer. So it's someone who's overseeing the business of others. Again, someone who meddles in things who don't concern him or her. It's the busybody. Jonadab wanted to chum up to Amnon as he was the heir apparent, the one who would take the throne, and maybe if Jonadab gave him advice so that he could get what he wanted, one day when Jonadab became the king, or when Amnon became the king, Jonadab would have a great place within the kingdom. And then after that was blown up, we see Jonadab consoling David. Uh, revealing that Amnon was murdered because there was a rift between Absalom and Amnon for a long time. Remember, we saw that in verse 32. Uh, Jonadab said to David in the end of verse 32, for by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. How did he know this? He knew this the whole time because he was the palace meddler, the palace middleman, the one who was the constant go-between. You've met this person before, right? She has all the information on this side of the rift and all the information on that side of the rift. And her attitude is just keep coming to me. I'll be the go-between. She doesn't do what she's supposed to do by helping the parties to reconcile to biblically reconcile, but instead she keeps them apart and continues to be that meddler or that middleman. In fact, you know, she doesn't even want them to reconcile because if they were to reconcile, you know what would happen? She'd lose her role as the middleman and she wouldn't be privy to all that dirt and all that information. We do not want to be the meddler, to be that go-between. And if right now, you're in a situation where you're the go-between, the meddler, uh, the one who's getting into business that you should not be involved in, you need to repent and ask those two parties to biblically reconcile. Help them to reconcile. And then you'll be free to do the work that God's called you to do. And we see this truth in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. Second Thessalonians 3.11 says, we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. They walk in idleness. Have you ever put your car in idle or in neutral and the engine is running and running and running, but the car doesn't go anywhere? That's the same thing here. A person who's running and running and running, but not making any real progress because they're not doing the work that God called them to do. Instead, they're trying to meddle in other people's business and other people's work. Oh, and speaking of business and work, the work that we should be doing, we can't forget that our problems began with David neglecting his work. And we have to ask, where was David in all of these things? He was basically absent still. He wasn't doing the work that he should have been doing. He didn't exercise his parental authority over Amnon or even his royal authority as the king to properly punish Amnon for the rape of his own daughter, Tamar. David really should have been involved here. David penned Psalm 9. Psalm 9 verse 9 says, Written by David, Yahweh is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. David should have been that stronghold for his daughter. He should have punished his son and exonerated her. He was angry, the text said, in 2 Samuel 13, 21, but it stopped at that. He was angry, but he didn't do anything about his anger, and he should have. He should have stood up for what was right. And that's our fifth and final point. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for righteousness. And we might wonder, why? Why did David not stand up for righteousness here? And scholars give us uh, two probable responses, and it might be a combination of both. But the first is that he may have felt powerless because in a sense he had done the same thing. And the second is that he appeared to really have fawned over Amnon and coddled Amnon. Uh, 2 Samuel 13, 21, where it says, when King David heard of these things, he was very angry. Uh, The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was written a few years before, a few hundred years before the birth of Jesus. uh, And one of the Qumran scrolls that was found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, along with the historian Josephus, uh, add to that verse. It says, when King David." heard the whole story. He was very angry, but he would not hurt Amnon because he was his eldest son and he loved him. Now, scholars say that's probably not the original text, but that's what the ancients believed was the problem here. And it seems that David did coddle Amnon or fawn over Amnon. I mean, if you think about it back in the beginning when Jonadab advised Amnon He knew that David was going to come visit his sick adult son in his home. Uh, He knew that uh, David would not deny his request or demand for baked cakes by his sister Tamar, baked in a way so that he could see her while she was baking them. And even Tamar said, the king will not withhold me from you although incest was illegal at that time. She knew that David could probably find some biblical precedent for the marriage of the two. It seems like everybody knew that David would do whatever it takes to coddle Amnon. They all expected him to grant Amnon's wishes. And you know, if David had stood up for righteousness and had punished his son, lives would have been spared. Lives would have been saved as a result. For us, whether it's our child, our spouse, our friend, our neighbor, do not let the fear of losing a relationship keep you from standing up for what is right. Never let the fear of losing that relationship keep you from doing the right thing. And again, some say it could have been that David felt powerless because he also took a woman who was off limits. You know, for us, even if we have done the same thing we're calling out, we're still called to stand up for what is right. Jesus addressed this in a sense in Luke 6:42. Luke 6:42, Jesus said, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? And then he said, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Jesus saying, deal with your sin first, and then you need to stand up for righteousness and help others to deal with their sin. I mean, if you tell your kids you need to stop gossiping and your kids say, but you gossiped, or if you say to your kids, you're lying, you can't lie, but I heard you lie, or you're losing your temper, you got angry, but you got angry, You need to tell your kids you have repented and you are called to stand up for righteousness even though you failed in the past, not be like David here, not intervening and doing as we should because when we're called to stand up for righteousness and we fail to, that action will never prosper in the end or that lack of action. Well, we began by considering the ripple effect, right? thinking about how one action influences others exponentially, it goes on and on and on. You know, Jesus talked about the ripple effect in an interesting way. Uh, In Mark 4, 30 through 32, Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? He said, it is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So Jesus illustrating the same thing, something so small in the beginning going on to grow into something so great and grand and glorious that even the birds of the air can nest in it. Our one small action today carries with it the potential for tremendous impact tomorrow. We need to learn from these failures of the past that we've seen in 2 Samuel 13 and apply the points that were taken away. Uh, We want to be known for obedience to God, submitting our desires to the scripture, trusting that God is going to avenge every wrong, getting out of the position of a meddler and instead standing up for righteousness when we're called to. And if we do this, we can trust that the ripple effect of our choices won't harm, but will benefit others for years and decades to come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this historical account of what occurred in David's household in 2 Samuel 13. God, we thank you for the hard lessons that are here for us. God, we pray, Lord, help us to be known, to have a reputation for obedience. When others think of us and look at the story of our life, that they would see an obedient woman. God, if we're doing anything right now that would keep us from being known that way, help us to repent. God, help us to constantly submit our desires to your will. May we yield to you. May we get behind you and put our desires under your desire, Lord. God, I pray that we would trust you, that we truly would set aside our desires for vengeance and revenge, trusting you, knowing that one day every single deed will be judged by your holy eyes and your holy word. God, if we're in the position of the meddler, help us to get out now and do whatever we can to help those parties to reconcile so that we won't be like a modern Jonadab. And Lord, help us to stand up for righteousness. We know that as we stand up for what you want us to stand up for, that we do and we will risk relationships But I pray God that we would be so passionate about your son, Jesus Christ. So grateful for what he's done for us in taking the punishment for all of our sin. All of the wrath that we deserve for our sin was taken by him. God, please help us to at least stand up for what is right today. Being willing to risk the consequences, Lord God, to represent you in a broken world. And I pray God that the ripple effect of our lives would be for good. That lives would be influenced again for days and weeks and months and years and even decades for good. Lord Jesus, help us and thank you God. Thank you Lord God for redeeming us and allowing us to make a positive difference we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. You guys are dismissed to your groups.